1: There's a First Nations uh, practice, an indigenous practice uh, in the area where I live in the west coast uh, of Canada where if people um, have lost their spirit and have lost track of themselves uh, they go out into the forest as far as they can and they yell their name as loud as they can several times. And the idea is, uh, if you've lost your spirit, you go into the forest and you yell your name, and your spirit will hear. And then it will come back to you. And uh, when I learned about this from a few sources this year, I thought, that's what we're doing in the zendo. (laughs) We're coming back to our breathing without the yelling. We're coming back to our breathing, and coming back to our breathing, and every time that we do that, it's like we're calling the spirit back again. Because, uh, let's face it, with all the distraction and all the habit, we uh, lose track of ourselves. So if you want to come home to yourself, if you want to understand your mind, If you want to really understand your heart, you need to sit still and look really closely. If you want to accept yourself, uh, you need to sit down right in the middle of the present moment, which is always the middle of your life, and just feel what it's like to be alive. Whenever someone asks me, what's meditation? This happens a lot. I I always say, it's uh, feeling your life. For me, that's what meditation is. It's not really like a vehicle to get somewhere. I feel that way less and less about meditation. And um, I really feel like uh, meditation is a practice that teaches us how to just feel our way into our lives. And because of that, even though I know that some of you go through this and it's frustrating, there's nothing in this community that you can join. (laughs) There's no way you can join here. (laughs) We don't have a temple. The temple in this practice is just your body, your heart in the present moment. And that's the sacred space in which we practice. But One thing you might uh, start to realize is that you actually need to train yourself in how to look inward. Most of us, we, we go to look inward, but the way we're looking has so much conditioning that we need some training in how to do it. Like how do you go about looking inward? And that's why we really start with our body. So we can discover the nature of thinking. Not just the content of thinking. Like body and mind falls away. Like the nature of body. Not just like what we think of as our body. the nature of emotions, not just what we think of as our emotions, but actually the the nature and and the emptiness of, of emotions and the emptiness of the mind. And then, over time, this creates ease and more kindness in our own hearts and in our relationships. The Dalai Lama says, I try to meet everyone I meet as an old friend. Isn't that so beautiful? Imagine every person you encountered, you try and relate to them like an old friend. And what I like about this and why I often think about that quote is because it has in it this attitude of inclusion. Like whatever is coming up, it can be included. Who you encounter, it can be included. You're never going to be free of all bias, or never. Yet, we can work on cultivating this spirit of inclusion. And it comes partly from learning how to look. How to look at what's happening in your experience, and how to be in your experience. And here on retreat, one of the ways we do that is by getting really concentrated on the momentariness of all phenomena. Just the momentariness of snow, the momentariness of impatience, the momentariness of discomfort. Just see how it's made up of these little moments and how things are passing, how everything's arising and passing, how many moods you've been in today. And then to start to see how your whole life is this moment-to-moment, non-stop flow. And I think we all get that intellectually. Every single person here has thought that intellectually. But here on retreat, we really see it and really feel it. We really tune in. Wow, the snow's really coming now. I love when it goes sideways like that, <laughs> and you're not out in it. <laughs> and as we tune into this momentariness, this, this flow of experience, Some ease comes in. Some gentleness comes into our body. And that lasts for a little bit. And then it's always interrupted by conditioning again. And this is this oscillation we're doing all the time on retreat. And then you begin again with that innocence. So practice is not linear. I think those of you who do lots of retreats, you know this. You have good retreats. You have bad retreats. And I'm sorry to say, practice doesn't get better. <laughs> it's more like a sine curve. Right? Uh, your practice, as it repeats, um, goes through ups and downs. But yet, there is a ramp. But within that ramp, um There's a lot of ups and downs. And I get this all the time. Once in a while, I have a sit where I'm so irritated and I'm so like impatient and kind of just not wanting to be in my body. And I start to have doubts. I think, what the hell have I been doing? (laughs) And like I hate meditation practice. I really, why do I do this? This is like, and I really get into this doubt mind. I don't know if any of you have felt this before, but I get into this kind of doubt mind, like, why am I doing this? And it, it often turns into, like, what have I been doing for my whole adult life? You know? <laughs> and um, and it's kind of funny that you can practice so, I put so much time into this, and still once in a while I sit down, and it, it's like I've never meditated before. <laughs> And um, and then sometimes you sit and you're really, really concentrated. And maybe sometimes you're on a retreat and you're really concentrated the whole retreat. And you really feel all the years behind you. All the practice behind you. Like a really good habit. So, There's some courage that's needed in practice. We call this virya. Virya in Sanskrit can mean either energy or um, courage. And it's the courage of being able to get closer to your experience. And that's really what we're learning here. Closer to your moment-to-moment experience. For me, one of the hardest things to get closer to, as I've practiced over the years, is fear. I'm like a worry and fear kind of guy. So I love to sit and worry, so much. It's my favorite sport. And um, and I've I've sometimes had so much fear. In my practice, I'm scared to go to the cushion, or I'm I'm scared to even go from walking meditation to sitting meditation. And then you, over time, develop virya, this quality of courage. You don't just get it. Like this quality of courage that for years you cultivate that teaches you how to not just get closer to your experience, but I don't mean like heroic courage. I mean how to get, closer to your experience in a way that's tender. Not just like on top of it. Like tenderness takes courage. It's not just there. It's something we have to cultivate. My friend uh, Catherine uh, Bruni has this saying she uses all the time that I love. She always says, everyone has their thing So whenever I'm complaining about something, she always says, everybody has their thing. I really love it. I use it all the time now. Actually, I used it with her uh, just recently. I said, oh, you're not coming on the New Year's retreat again. I always tease her that she hasn't been on the New Year's retreat. She's like, no. I'm like, everyone has their thing. So if you have intense anxiety that you struggle with, or you have uh, disordered eating that you struggle with, or you have chronic pain that you struggle with, or you have um, uh, symptoms of PTSD that you struggle with, part of knowing that virya, this kind of tenderness, tender courage is being cultivated, is you being able to say to yourself, if I had these symptoms the rest of my life. I could work with it. If I had these symptoms for the rest of my life, um, I could manage. So that's the kind of radical acceptance that we use in this practice. So on the one hand, we have all this formality. And we all know that if someone came here and looked at the zendo, an hour they'd be like whoa this is so strict and oppressive and whatever but if someone could actually go inside the subjective experience of how the practice develops over five days they'd see that it's actually really really soft and really really gentle so uh, quite a lot of people in here have been around the past couple months in various cities, which has been really nice, where I've been teaching and, or following on Facebook. And you know I've been do- making a lot of posts about um, being there for people and loving people and not abandoning experience. And so I, I was thinking today that one of the things I want to talk about also is when to disengage from experience, like when to honor that something 's not working, when to honor you know patterns we get in that are not good for us and not good for other people because it 's like a delicate topic that I think sometimes we 're so into like intimacy only means getting close to every single thing, but sometimes Bodhisattva practice is also about um, loving this. <laughs> Being, which doesn't really exist, but loving this non-existent being um, in order to serve uh, a wider perspective. And um, sometimes when we're feeling distress, it can be really wise to disengage. If we're confronted with someone with whom we have a very tangled past, and um, a tangled history, sometimes we feel a lot of obligation, especially if we've known them a long time, um, to help them. But it's not always uh, the right thing to do. The Tibetan Lama, uh, Tsigar Kongjul Rinpoche, describes a practice uh, called Lenchuk, Which he translates interestingly as karmic debt. And the way uh, this is traditionally described is a lake where many seals live. And the seals live in this lake. And every evening, the owls in the nearby forests come to the trees on the shoreline and sit on the branches. And then the seals bring fish to the owls. The owls come down from the (coughs) branches, come to the shore, eat up all the fish that the seals give them, and the seals feel totally unsatisfied. They don't know why they keep bringing all the fish to the owls, and they don't really receive a thank you or gratitude from the owls. And the owls never really feel satisfied from receiving the fish from the seals. And to both of them, all of this happens for no apparent reason. The seals don't know why they keep bringing fish to the owls. And the owls don't really know why they're still unsatisfied. The seals don't seem to benefit, and the owls don't seem to benefit. But night after night, the seals do uh, all this, I want to say, emotional labor of finding fish. And the owls take the fish. And this fruitless repetition is called lemchuk. I love there's a name for it. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of us have experienced relationships like this, or we're in relationships like this, that demand a lot of energy. And it can be difficult uh, to manage on both sides. The energy is harmful both for the owls and for the seals. And the reason is because this karmic debt is experienced as an obligation, both from the side of the giver and from the side of the taker. Do you have relationships like this, where there's an obligation to take, or there's an obligation to give? And you kind of like riding a bicycle Lost track of all the steps of how you started doing this. Or maybe you don't even really have conscious access anymore to how you're doing this. And because of this, there's really little room for genuine compassion and genuine generosity to come in. And in cases like this, we really need to recognize this pattern for what it is it's a habit. And part of our practice is to tame and transform these habits. If our bodhis- I'm going to say this a million times, but if our bodhisattva vow is to serve all beings, it includes this being, to reduce codependency or enabling, And then, taming our habit becomes an expression of compassion. But it's really hard, sometimes, to break a habit when you know it's going to cause pain for the other person. Sometimes, uh, there's unbearable feeling that enters our lives. Sometimes, we feel pain or instability that we can't manage by ourselves. And sometimes people say stupid things to us. One of the stupid things, please don't ever say this in my presence, is God never gives you too much to handle. (laughs) Have you heard this one before? In some experiences, that phrase makes no sense at all. Homophobia Grief, trauma, neglect, oppression, mental disorders, sexism. These are all forms of suffering that are really overwhelming, and they can flood us to a point we can't bear it. When you feel this way and someone tells you, oh, God doesn't give you too much to handle, (laughs) there's structural violence that's too much to handle. And it can flood us to the point that we can't bear it, and we become paralyzed. Part of our practice is when we're feeling overwhelmed to turn towards feeling overwhelmed. One of the things that happens for the seals and for the owls is they are not tuned in to their overwhelm. When you feel overwhelmed, it's okay to withdraw. It's okay to turn inward and to recognize you have limitations. Bodhisattvas are not just extroverted. So we don't withdraw to escape. We withdraw to rejuvenate to turn inward and find balance again. So our withdrawal is a strategic withdrawal. It has a a very clear intention. I think about this like I said on Friday night when we all arrived here. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been listening to too much and talking too much for the past month. (laughs) And our practice needs to be like, it needs to ebb and flow like a flower. you know. There's a time it's open, really, really, really open. And there's a time it closes in, just like our Orioke set. Mm-hmm. So the word len, the prefix len means time or occurrence. And Chuck means attachment or attraction. So it refers to the, the habit over time of a karmic pull to somebody. It's a wonderful term, isn't it? But usually denoting a kind of unhealthy movement. And it has two sides. The seal side and the owl side. If we're the seal... We often feel an unspoken emotional responsibility for somebody else's mind or someone else's well-being. As much as we want to have space from someone, we can't break loose. There's no way to separate. Maybe you had a parent to whom you had to be a provider, a caregiver, a therapist, a friend, a lover, or whatever. And it's very hard now to be able to separate who you are from who they are. And it happens at the level of your nervous system, especially as these patterns get laid down as young people. And then we're held hostage by our own attachments, our guilt, and our inability to resist the pain of separating out of that habit. And all that comes from feeling unreasonably responsible for them, which of course is a disservice for them. So on the one hand, we can't bear as seals watching the owl struggle. And on the other hand, we can't bear the pain of leaving them alone. And then we do more than our share. In psychology, this is called over functioning or overcompensating. And this comes from a sense of guilt. Or confusion, as the case may be. around separating. And over time this exhausts us and then we don't shine anymore. Dampens our treasures. And then there's another side which is the owl side. The owl is like a hungry ghost who's never satisfied. No matter how many fish The seals try to feed the owl. The owl is never satisfied. Does anybody here have a parent like this? A friend like this? A relative like this? Sibling like this? An ex-husband? And the problem for the owl is that we're always depending on someone else to satisfy us. The hope that they'll manage our fears and our emotions for us. Now this is all on a spectrum. Okay? So there is no way to have deep loving relationships without being needy. If you want to Uh, deepen a relationship with a friend or deepen a relationship with a lover, you should be really needy. And like, there are times where all of us are a mess, and we need way more than what's the normal standard of what's needed. And don't be ashamed of that. We all need that. And there are times where in relationship with people, who suddenly need way more than what we're used to providing for them. And it stretches us, sometimes it burns us out, but it doesn't matter. That's just how love works. We we do this for one another. We all have insecurities, and we need to bring them into the relationship. But that's not really what's being talked about here with owl and seals. Here's what Kangjul Rinpoche says. This is an interesting take on it. He says interestingly the owl so frail so needy and insecure is not necessarily as feeble as it seems to be in fact the owl has the upper hand it's manipulative if you want to know the it's manipulative if you want to know the truth the owl just doesn't want to clean up its own mess And this is a privileged attitude. If the owl couldn't afford to be weak, if it didn't have the seal, it would naturally rise to its own challenges. So the irony here is that the more the fish the seal offers the owl, the more resentful and demanding the owl gets. Are you following that logic a little bit? Okay. So the problem with all this is both the owl and the seal loses their dignity. They lose their dignity. They lose their balance. They lose their footing. So again, we all need care in different ways. And some of us are in relationships where they go through phases where the level of care just really has to increase or the level of care switches, the person who's always the caring person suddenly now is, is the other. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about karmic patterns we get into where both people feel unsatisfied. Both people feel unsatisfied. And part of compassionate practice is sometimes we have to take out our sharp sword of love and cut off relationships out of love, not out of anger, not out of resentment, but out of love in order for us to find balance, in order for us to not be so distressed. And I feel like sometimes we we are scared to think about loving people in this way and saying, nope. The reason why I mention this is because I think it's really good when we're in spaces like this to think about how sometimes we're overly bound up in the emotional demands of other people. Sometimes we're bound up in the emotional demands of other people because we love them, and we're crazy about them, and it's really deepening for the relationship. But sometimes we're in those patterns where it's not deepening for the relationship. It's, it's toxic for both people. What do we do about all this? Well, first thing is, I know so many people who've practiced lots of yoga, and they've paid really uh, careful attention to their diet, and they've visited lots of teachers and done lots of meditation retreats, and maybe they've developed some good concentration practices, and then Big emotional events happen in their life, and they make a mess of everything. Have you seen this before? (laughs) It's not that they don't know how to handle it, because some people just can't handle certain emotional things that come up. It's that they hurt other people in their inability to handle what's coming up. Through projection, through anger, just they make a train wreck of things. Even though they have like a really good diet <laughs> And their legs are really toned. <laughs> and their arms look like Madonna. Does Madonna still have Madonna arms?) Okay. Why does this happen? because they're still lacking this genuine kindness towards themselves. Lacking this gentleness towards themselves. When you keep your posture really stable and you just relax into the practice, can you feel how gentle your breath is? Like, that's the kind of kindness that we need to cultivate, that we need to tune into when we're relating to our minds and relating to our hearts. All day here, we're breathing in this formal posture. And I always think it's like massaging yourself from the inside and You're massaging yourself from the inside and you're becoming more and more tender. Mindfulness is not just paying attention it's paying attention to the way that you're paying attention. See? It's not just that you're paying attention to your your breathing or your distractions it's you're starting to pay attention to the quality of your attention and and this 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 um, Uh, tenderness, this kindness in your um, attentiveness is key. It's really key. And then you know what happens is you start to feel more at home in your body. And when you feel more at home in your body you feel more at home in the world. Say it again in case you're not listening. Because you might be like, "Well, I still want those arms. (laughs) when you just let the breath massage you from the inside and you feel that kind of gentleness you will start to be more at home in your body and when you're more at home in your body you're more at home in the world when you're at odds with your body there's not much kindness And although we're not supposed to talk about it too much, our bodies are aging. And soon you're gonna look in the mirror, at your aging body, and you're gonna be like, or maybe it's already half, I don't know. So if you don't have a tender attitude, Then, as you age, um, you're going to become angry because uh, your body isn't turning out the way it was supposed to turn out. Other people are not looking at your body the way you want them to look at your body, and so on and so on. You know the story. So, part of our practice is like just tenderizing our attention. And as we chant in the morning, all form is empty. And there's no way to see the emptiness of form without form. So form is emptiness, and you only see the empty nature of form with form. Like right now, get distracted. Like, don't look at me, just get distracted. <laughs> or maybe that's your way of getting distracted. <laughs> get distracted. So just get distracted, just think about something. And then come back again. So the thought that you just had, was it real? Like, I thought about dinner, dinner, mmm, brown rice (laughs) and lentils, again. Okay, can you eat the brown rice? Can you eat the brown rice? Can I eat the lentil I just thought about? No. You can take, kind of taste it, Mm. right? but it's not real, it's empty. It's empty of substantiality. And the you that you think that's happening to is also empty of a substantiality. But you can only see that with form. So form and emptiness are one and the same thing. The Buddha, 2,500 years ago to this month, looked at himself. (coughs) He looked at the world and he looked at time and he looked at space and he saw it was all empty. His past and his future were also empty. Meaning that uh, none of us he thought, boil down to one thing. And because he could see this, he was free. The Buddha saw that nothing has its own being. Nothing has its own inherent existence, which means there's nothing to possess. There's nothing to lose. And there's no one to possess anything, and nobody to lose anything. So that's all fancy jargon for saying uh, so just love people and yourself. Love deeper and love harder. And when there is distress that's unmanageable, it's okay to pull back. It's okay to pull back strategically and rejuvenate and see where there are patterns that are consuming uh, energy that's not satisfying both parties. It's okay. None of us are saints. Those are just good stories. If we don't uh, work this way to take care of ourselves and love ourselves, it's really hard to find kindness for other people. And then our spirits will get sick. And when our spirits are sick, when our soul is sick, then we start chasing after things that can't be grasped and thinking that they can be grasped. So the natural consequence of all of this is love. We love ourselves and we love other people. And then, with that attitude, we start to see that uh, selfishness is really painful. Can you see it in meditation practice? When you're really distracted, and you're really caught in these narratives, and you start to see how much of that is just trying to build a solid you, you can actually feel in your body how grasping comes with physiological stress. It comes with stress. So it actually hurts your body to be selfish. And when we're selfish, we do negative things, and the karma of negative things always comes back to hurt us again. Because there's no us. (laughs) There's no me and a you over there. So, be gentle with yourself, whether you're a seal, be gentle with yourself whether you're in an owl, whether you're an owl, and some of us are seals in some relationships and owls in other relationships. Some of us are always seals, not always, mostly seals and mostly owls. (laughs) Once upon a time, there was an old monastery where because of persecution in the 17th century to the 19th century, this old Christian monastery um, had fallen into ruin. And only five monks lived there. And they were all over the age of 75. And uh, the monastery was in its last... phase of decline. Um, because the monks who lived there were in silence and prayer for most of their lives, they were fairly psychic. Uh, you will all get like this if you okay. keep practicing, is you start getting really good intuition. Um, because your mind gets calm and you start getting psychic. And um, anyway, so they were psychic. and. Uh, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, And uh, around the property in the forests were solitary huts for meditation and prayer. And there was a local rabbi who used to go to this monastery and use the huts uh, in order to to do long periods of meditation and prayer. And so all of these uh, monks could psychically feel the rabbis here. The rabbis deep in meditation. And they started saying to each other, maybe we could go talk to the rabbi and get some advice about how to uh, bring energy and life back to this community and back to these buildings and back to this temple. So anyways, they waited and waited until um, the rabbi finished his retreat. They could sense when his retreat was finished. And then uh, the head uh, abbot, went over to visit the rabbi in his cabin. And they sat together and uh, talked. And then he said to the rabbi, our community is in decline. Our buildings are empty. We're all elderly. No young people are coming. We can't even fundraise to fix up the property. And we're gonna blow away, we're gonna disappear. So what should we do about it? Do you have any advice? And the rabbi said, our congregation is a little like this too. It's declining. Everyone's getting old. No young people are coming. And they both cried together. And after crying, they read some Torah. They did more prayers. And then the rabbi said, I'm going to pack now and go. And the abbot said, well, well, wait. I came here to ask for some advice. I need some advice, not just uh, sympathy, you know. So what should I do? And the rabbi said, uh, I have no advice. I have no advice to give you. The the abbot was a bit under pressure. So he said, please, some kind of advice. The rabbi said, I have none. He packed his bags, and as he was walking out the door, he turned around and he said, "Um, one of you in your community is the Messiah? So the Messiah is like the uh, reincarnation of the divine. So one of you is the Messiah. So the abbot didn't really understand what that meant. The, do you, do you catch this in stories. It's always like this. They like get a teaching and they don't kind of really get it, <laughs> like all the interviews we had today. <laughs> Um, I was really expecting this great interview, and I don't really know what he was talking about. So, so anyways, um, the, uh, the abbot goes off, and he goes back to the other four um, um, residents, and they say, so what happened? You met the rabbi, and what happened? He said, I don't know. He wouldn't give me any advice. And said, Well, did he say anything? He said, Well, he said this passing thing that I didn't really understand, which is that one of us is the Messiah. And nobody really understood what that meant. (laughs) So, anyways, months go by. And as the months go by, people start thinking about this. They start thinking about this. And they start talking about it. And one of them says, Oh, like Ryan, he's kind of quiet. I don't really see how he could, like, be the Messiah. But may, maybe, like, maybe he's a Messiah. I don't know. And, um, yeah, and then they keep, you know, talking. And it's like, oh, well, Doug, I don't know. He's, like, too tall to be the Messiah. <laughs> and, um You know, too eager to get the oreochi bowls. And I don't know, maybe he could be the Messiah, you know. And then they, uh, you know, so this, like, months and months goes on. You know, like this, and then they're like, oh, Elaine, she's such a light, you know. She's so kind to everyone, almost everyone. And, like, maybe she could be the Messiah. So this goes on until they go through all... but what happens is is as they start to have these discussions, they ch- start treating each other as if maybe they were a Buddha, as if maybe they were the Messiah. And the other thing starts happening is in private, some of them start saying to themselves, Elaine says, you know. Maybe that thing Michael was joking about, (laughs) like, and she looks in the mirror and she's like, I'm for sure the aging part for sure, but also maybe I'm, maybe I'm God, (laughs) you know? And uh, they start treating each other differently and this aura develops in the community and once in a while, someone comes to visit to drop off food or to play it on the grounds. And they start feeling this incredible aura from the way the people in the community treat themselves and treat each other. This incredible kindness. And they don't. people don't really understand it. And eventually, um, people start coming to pray. People start coming for picnics on the property. People start offering their time to rebuild the temple, and the community grows and becomes very successful. I love this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that whole community also is your body. Maybe you used to punish your body. And one of the ways we can punish our body is not just through our attitude about our body, but sometimes the way we persist in toxic relationships. And part of our bodhisattva practice is to also be able to say, I love you, this doesn't work. And It doesn't mean, and I want to underline this, it doesn't mean there aren't times in a relationship that can go on a really long time where it feels like hell, you know? And you're just like pulling out your hair, if you even have hair left, trying to figure out whether you should stay or go. Sometimes that happens. But I hope everyone understands that's not the kind of phase I'm talking about there are times to pull back from distress or back from violence and say, there's too much violence here for me to practice. I can't practice with every kind of violence. Okay, God may give us whatever, but I can't practice with this kind of violence. This kind of sexism, this kind of homophobia, this like whatever level of violence is there There's times we can't be owls or seals and participate in that. And then we rejuvenate. And then when we rejuvenate, we see ourselves as Buddha, as not separate from Buddha. The current Pope has a wonderful uh, line where he says, I woke up in the middle of the night concerned about a problem and I thought I should tell the Pope about it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then I woke up and I thought I am the Pope. <laughs> we hear all these stories and we, we about the Buddha for example and like to remember that that the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, these things we take refuge in, are you. Like It's not like you're in the Sangha, you're in the community. It's like you are the community. What's the Dharma? The Dharma is what a Buddha is awakened to. The momentary flow of experience. When you see the Dharma, you're a Buddha. When you see the dharma, then you're a Buddha. And the Buddha is not like this conventional historical person. The Buddha is your mind when it's free of reactivity. That's the same mind the Buddha had when he was free under a tree. And when you have that mind, that's Buddha. And that's what you take refuge in. That's what you know. That's what transforms you. That's what inspires you to keep practicing. And that mind, the Buddha's mind, is so kind. The Buddha's mind sees other people as Buddha, or the Messiah, or whatever language you want to Here's your homework. Just be kind. (laughs) Just be so kind. Just be so kind with yourself. If you leave here, and you just know the forms, and you just know the chants, and uh, you just learned the Oriyoki technique, but you didn't find that spirit of kindness that's inside the practice, uh, then you've, you, you, you'll have missed the spirit of the practice. And the spirit of the practice is more important than all the forms. Forms are empty. Forms are empty.
0: Thank you for listening to michael stone's podcast Awaken the world if you like this podcast you can support it by subscribing on itunes or soundcloud please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack you can also support us by word of mouth tell a friend or send a tweet finally please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through patreon at patreon.com forward slash michael stone Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.